Welcome to Just Us and the Climate, a podcast by the Climate Justice Coalition, where we bring climate change back down to earth and show how it's not only a crisis, but an opportunity to build a better, more just world. Good morning, everyone. My name is Tando Lukuko, and I am the coordinator of the South African Climate Action Network, a network of CSOs or NGOs in South Africa working on climate change. And today's conversation on our podcast show, Just Us and the Climate, I will be joined with Pato Geletze, who's going to be introducing our guest for today's show. And so um, Pato and I have been working together on SACAN for a few weeks now, and she also runs her own podcast, Back in Bots, the name of which is, Pato? Uh, Sustain 267 Podcast. That's the one. You heard it. Uh, Sustain 267 yeah. Podcast. Mm-hmm. Pato, would you mind just introducing us for the guests uh, and then introducing our esteemed guest for today's show? Okay. Um, so... Great to um, be invited to be part of this podcast series. I'm really looking forward to today's conversation. In this episode, we are in conversation with Brenda Martin, and she's a climate policy expert. And today's conversation is on climate policy in a developmental state. So we'll be exploring where we are, where we need to be, and how do we get there? Um, Brenda Martin has worked in South Africa's energy and development sector for nearly two decades, during which she has led campaigns, conducted research, facilitated multi-sectoral dialogues and established national networks. Between 2007 and 2014, she played a leading role in the successful establishment of cross-sectoral civil society networks in South Africa on climate change, energy and electricity. She was also the founding director of Project 90 by 2013, a national NGO with a mission to inspire, mobilize a low carbon society and challenge South Africans to think and act differently. And since January 2020, she has headed the career service at University of Cape Town with a particular interest in new career prospects um, which are associated with energy and sustainability transitions. Brenda, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to join you, Pato and Sando. So kicking off the conversation, considering the work that you do and you've done um, and how long you've been working in this area, I think the perfect question would be, considering that South Africa is a developmental state, where are we thus far with climate policy? Hmm, We've Certainly not as advanced as we would like to be or should even be at this stage, um, especially when you take into account all the efforts that have been made in this area. And when you take into account the um, ambition that has been very clearly understood by our policymakers for a very long time, including uh, if you go back to all of the costs and all of the nationally determined commitments that we have made across uh, the most recent field of, of climate policy. I think um, I've, I've always worked in the area of mitigation and, and climate rather than adaptation because I've been very aware of the, um, the heavy burden we have in relation to coal. So I think that our, our, our ambition is always going to be balanced or counterbalanced by all of the, the changes that need to be made. And then considering the work that um, has been put in up to now, um, you mentioned that you concentrate on mitigation, considering that, well, 
you concentrate on mitigation. How far are we on that journey? Have we had any successes in South Africa on that journey to date? To start on a high note before we ask on the yep. other side. So some of the high notes are that we have actually um, introduced a renewable energy program, which is a, a utility scale. And remembering that in South Africa, electricity has such a big role to play in the mitigation space. It's basically, if you're talking about mitigation and you're wanting to effect systemic change, you need to attend to electricity. So we have a dominant, we still have a dominant coal-fired um, power electricity sector. Um, so we have made some progress in the sense that, um, first of all, there's this formal utility scale renewables program. There's also uh, quite a significant effort has been underway for quite some time in relation to energy efficiency. So those two things together certainly have made a, a good impact in terms of uh, reducing the coal dependency of our electricity supply and our mitigation efforts. But I think there are other parts of the mitigation space that are quite interesting and they relate more to transport and buildings. The Green Building Council, for instance, has introduced many standards um, relating to buildings and, and what can be achieved at that level. Um, but I think the greatest differences are being made at city level rather than at national level. Um, there are cities that are really leading the way in these spaces. Cape Town, yes, um, Gauteng. Nelson Mandela Bay, there are just some really interesting initiatives that are happening at that level. Just to go back on something that you said, the utility scale, do you mind just expanding on that for anyone who perhaps doesn't work in the area and doesn't quite know what a utility scale is? Yes. So we have in South Africa a national grid which supplies electricity from the north to the south of the country. And that grid is run by our national utility, which is ESCOM. And it really means that You've got large volumes of power being transported across the country, um, and that power is converted at a, at a local level into power that can be utilized in the home. And uh, when, you, when you think of the other sort of by comparison, um, on a smaller scale, you have solar water heaters and you have um, maybe a mini grid or micro grid in the area that supplies a few households or a few businesses with power, or even a business with um, a grid on its roof, a solar panel grid that um, provides its power, then you're thinking of a more small-scale embedded generation. Utility scale is more that national grid-based supply. Um, thank you for breaking that down for us. When we look at um, the standards that have been introduced, you did say that it's cities instead of national, which... I mean, it's a great place to start considering that um, UN Habitat did, did report that cities consume 78% of the world's energy and cities produce more than 60% of greenhouse gas emissions. So we, we, we could have started off with a um, great place to start where the problem is. Um, and then looking forward now, what have our pitfalls been so far? Maybe what are the mistakes that we need that we've made that we need to look into, and just what are the mistakes that could happen that we've maybe seen happen in other places that we should avoid, um, so that we're not jumping in with solutions oblivious to some of the, I don't know, some of the risks that the solutions may face. 
So I think it's important here to take into account that we are in a developmental economy. And when you take that into account, you immediately, the next consideration you have to have is for justice. Um, and if in, I've been working in the past uh, probably three years more intensively on um, the just transition in relation to making a transition away from coal. I think the bulk of the efforts that are happening at national level are about setting a national ambition and I think about setting a, a, a set of a leadership objectives which are about, you know, we're we nailing our colors to the mast and we're saying, as a country, this is where we need to be. But when it comes to implementation, the greatest opportunity is often at the micro level, at, the, at a slightly smaller level where there are distinct um, actors that can be engaged to ensure that movement is made. And this is, I think, is why cities have been such great champions, because they can um, influence uh, all kinds of things around citizen choices and citizen actions that add up to the national ambition that is then achieved in the end. For me, the, the biggest considerations are around justice and around ensuring that in this effort that we are making, that we need to make and we recognize we need to make in relation to improving our climate outcomes for the, for the whole world because the system is all interconnected, there's got to be a consideration for how the most vulnerable and how the most people who have benefited or have had just some... It, let me let me say put this another way. In our context, in South Africa's context, there have been systemic societal exclusions for across a very long period of time, at least 150 years, depending on which lens you want to go into this with. But if you just took into account the fact that there are systemic exclusions from the economy, from uh, society, from cities even, um, in terms of spatial planning and so on. You, there are so many um, things to be taken into account so that you don't actually entrench or worsen those legacies in the choices that are made now with the sense of urgency that we have in relation to climate. So the, the, the bulk of my concerns or my uh, cautions would be around how do we, how do the decisions that we make affect jobs? How do they affect uh, livelihoods? Um, the capacity of people to own property? To, um, to be able to have autonomy and, and access to all kinds of parts of the economy. Those are the things, uh, those spaces would be where my concerns lie. Yeah. Um, I think something that has definitely gained traction is the term intersectional climate justice. So I think that's, that's where that comes in. Um, the first thing you said was just transition. That is a term that has gained popularity in South Africa, but I think it's important for us to also break that down. What is a just transition? So in my view, a just transition is one in which everyone is, is aligned to a vision that is needing to be achieved, but there is recognition in how we get there that that process of getting there will be embedded with and will be imbued with justice throughout. It will include just consultation, it will include just consideration of effects, preparation where necessary, and it would include things like ensuring that those agendas that are so far from being fulfilled, like land ownership, that those kinds of um, objectives still get attention along the way while we have that vision in mind. Because a lot of 
um, national projects, they tend to focus on the vision and expect people to be swept up behind it and, and a lot of eggs get broken along the way. Yeah, I'd like to come in here. Um, so, so Brenda, um, very, very interesting conversation so far. And there's a couple things that I'd like to just chew on quickly. So if we could just touch on South Africa's um, current um, circumstance, right, uh, similar to the rest of the globe. Uh, COVID came in in 2020. It has fundamentally changed the way in which people operate, people relate, economies are generating their value. And so on. So right now we're, we, I mean, rather at the end of last year, we saw South Africa put forth an economic recovery plan, which seemed to be more brown scale than green scale, right? So more investment into into things that we're already used to. And so my question then is, when you then juxtapose that to South Africa's climate commitments, right? Um, particularly looking at 2030. What what are your views? What are your perspectives? Are we are we making headway towards that? And what is the in your summation? What is the likelihood that uh, in the plan that's been put forth that we are able to address at least some of these justice aspects that you've touched on? I think one element of achieving a just transition is the recognition or appreciation of the fact that things might go uh, at a little bit of a slower pace than otherwise. So what is that saying? If you want to go fast go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And so when it comes to things like consultation, if you think in terms of a regional partnership that needs to happen, you know, there's so much that needs to happen still within the region, trade, all kinds of things around partnership that happen just in terms of um, ensuring that there's a, a lifting up of all the countries within the SADC region. Um, then I can understand that we are going more slowly than we would like to go. What we also need to bear in mind, though, as a counterbalance once again, is that those climate effects that we know are coming at us, they don't, they're not negotiable, they can't be negotiated with, and those climate effects are going to be felt much more severely within our region and, and probably also within uh, many parts of the continent, uh, the African continent, I mean when I say continent. So, how do we achieve those things? And, and for this reason, I've been very much focused on ensuring that we have a, a stronger coherence and a, and a partnership across this continent in the steps that we take. Um, and part of that, speaking as a South African again, is that you know South Africa tends to operate like it's um, anywhere in the world. You know, it's, it doesn't locate itself as part of the African continent in the sense of uh, prioritizing trade, prioritizing social justice and, and um, things like a simple open visa, you know, for anyone on the continent to be able to come into the country and economic access and all of that. So I think that there are many things that um, have an effect on the slowness of what it is that we are achieving. But I think some fundamental things that could be um, material to shifting us in these areas are things like a continental identity, a sense of the continental effect around the, the climate, um, just coming climate effects, and then a, a sense of what this energy transition means for things like the ongoing um, trade agreements that are happening around the world in relation to this continent, coal coming in and out of the continent, uh, minerals, wealth, all of those things. They all have a, a role to play in the speed of this transition. And so I, I never look at 
um, our climate uh, progress or our mitigation progress um, in isolation. I always think about the systemic links that we have to all of these legacies and the and the ways in which we approach our our identity on this continent. It's yeah. I mean, I I, I completely uh, agree with uh, with your views. For instance, on on um, building stronger partnerships with uh, at least our continental and regional brothers and sisters. I mean. It actually leads me to, you touched on something which I wanted to follow up with, and that was South Africa's, uh, shall we say, responsibility on the continent as as the 13th, at least at my last count, the 13th largest emitter um, in the world, um, first on the continent. Are we doing enough? And from, from, from the sense that I got in the previous um, response is that we're not do, doing nearly as much as we could as, as a country, um, particularly in the position that we enjoy. Um, so is, I just wanted to just get your sense there. Is that is that uh, also what you're saying that we could be doing enough? Um, I'm sorry, we could be doing more. Yeah. So years ago, when we were working on shaping Project 90's um, agenda, you know, there was a, a, a central to the ambition that we were setting around a 90% shift in behaviour and um, commitment around litigation. Central to that was the recognition that South Africa is a microcosm of the global um, north-south um, kind of this uh, uh, um, the kind of imbalance around um, climate effects. South Africa's um, footprint, carbon footprint, is so much larger than any other country, including the the country that has surpassed us in terms of economic growth, Nigeria. So we. We are, you know, we have a, a responsibility as the biggest carbon emitter to be doing more. Um, I think there are so many, uh, I, I did my master's on um, the politics of electricity planning, and there are so many stakeholder groups that have, um, then they coalesce around certain topics. And one of those um, sort of divisive, one of the most divisive topics are around um Supply of electricity between coal, nuclear, and renewables as a as a, a um, sort of a, a complete divide between those two, and a lot of um, arguments are made for the way in which economic growth can happen when you commit to coal and nuclear as opposed to when you commit to renewables, um, and those things are then again confused or tied up and, and conflated with other things like economic power and geopolitical power. So I think that um, when it comes to South Africa and what it is is probably what I would criticize South Africa as doing most badly is actually just being um, upfront and recognizing the facts in relation to those different supply options. Their costs, their, uh, the ways in which they affect people, the ways in which they affect the environment and climate, and the commitments that they make to the national um, bill, you know, just the national sovereign debt picture going far into the future. So all of those things, I think, are um, something that South Africa could be doing a lot more, uh, uh, could be doing better at actually framing and um, working with the facts in relation to those things. A lot of the um, slowness in our decision-making comes down to politics, and that is, absolutely unfortunate um, and it is I would say it's going to become tragic in in the not distant future 
So as you're speaking um, on South Africa and not just South Africa, but the continent doing better in addressing climate change, I was thinking, I really hope that the Africa Free Trade Agreement will address some of these issues that we face continentally in addressing the climate crisis at both policy and climate action level. And then so far, we've spoken about recommendations, both for South Africa and the continent. Um, we've looked at some of the pitfalls um, and our areas of improvement. But when we bring this all together, what are we working towards? What does success look like for South African climate policy, considering that South Africa is a developmental state? So I have to, I mean, you, you've asked me to speak um, and offer my opinions on these things. So obviously, these are my views. Um, I look to the field of feminism. You know, when, when you think about the fact that feminism has always been a... <laughs> has always been a, a, a way of thinking. It's a, it's a complete paradigm shift in terms of um, ensuring that there's access and fairness around all kinds of things relating to society. So I think a similar um, rallying point is the justice to, um, agenda. If we have justice at the heart of any of the efforts that we make, then we will have a uh, a commitment immediately to ensuring that we are addressing inequality, that we uh, historic inequality, and that we're not bringing introducing new inequalities um, that will will trip us up in time. Um, it would also include things like ensuring that there's consultation across the the spectrum of actors who are who are able to contribute to solutions, local, uh, and, and I'm talking about people who are living in spaces that are, are suffering directly the effect of these choices that have been made around uh, electricity in particular, and also in spaces that are uh, where people are going to be and are feeling the effects of climate um, disaster. I would argue for in a similar way that feminism has addressed so many long and stubborn, long-standing societal problems and still continues to fight that battle. Justice um, should be a, another cornerstone. But my caution is that we know how long and hard the feminist struggle has been. And it has made so little progress in terms of um, just changing so many ways of people thinking and the ways in which, um, where's power? How many manuals do we attend? How many um, events and, and how many situations in the workplace do we encounter? where um, these inequalities just practiced as a routine thing. So uh, I'm talking about gender inequality. So I, uh, by the same, uh, by, by mentioning that, I'm saying that sometimes when things are um, allowed to be a cornerstone or they are, what do you call it, integrated or um, made um, something that is, uh, you know, integrated across the board, sometimes they lose they sting. And so the, the, the third part of this equation that I think is essential is a, a relentless activism, uh, especially by people who have a stake in the future. And that includes people like myself, who is a, a, um, a very recent grandmother, all the way through to people who are going to be in a, in a situation where they are living with the consequences of the decision that are made now. So I would counter the real belief 
in the value of having a cornerstone with the sense that activism is always vital. In this moment, it is more vital than ever. So in addressing, in building climate change policy as a developmental state, we need to look at feminism, which I snapped when you said. Um, and I think a page that we can definitely borrow from that movement is moving from equality to equity, understanding mm -hmm. that people won't be affected the same. Justice Absolutely. must be at the heart, definitely. Consultation and attention to those already affected. Oh, uh, also meant to say congratulations on recently becoming a new <laughs> grandmother. Um, Thank you. Lastly, relentless activism. How do we channel that activism? Because like you said, within the feminist movement, we've seen where it's become very widespread and at times then having less effect, attacking itself, becoming almost self-carnivorous. How do we channel the activism in such a way that it's effective? Absolutely. And I, I, I can totally, um, I would snap my fingers when I say, you know, when you say that there's been this eating of itself, you know, it happens in every kind of space, especially where there's a, a values-driven agenda. People always hold one another and themselves to account in, in more ways than they do even societies. So I think a sense of a unified vision is vital to that, um, ensuring that there's a, 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 some of the fundamentals are clear. And those things, you know, are happening in different conversations. There's been, uh, there's the Climate Action Network. I mean, it's been working in this space for so many years around building cohesion. In South Africa, we've had um, the, the Energy Caucus. We've had groups that have been really putting, pulling the efforts, pooling the efforts and, and seeking to pull together in the same direction so that there's a uh, unific unified vision. I think what undermines everyone is we, when we miss the efforts that are made by others to divide and rule or divide and conquer. I worry so much about how often it is that we don't, we're not astute, we're not alert to those moments when we are being undermined by our enemies to, you know, in inverted commas. Um, we lose the plot. We fight with each other when we should be fighting the cause, um, you know. So I think those things are so important. Um, and one of the one of the things I would go back to feminism again is that um, there's been the sisterhood, you know, the sense of we are in this together and it's a very um, relentless, it, it, it lives on in terms of different difficult moments that are encountered. And bringing it back to climate, you know, what is that thing that could be that rallying point? What is that solidarity that we could actually find in the climate justice, in the energy, energy justice? I would challenge you and Tando and others like you to think about that. And, and once you've got it, push it hard so that it is um, very much a driver. Yeah. What is our cornerstone? And as you're talking about um, within the movement, the whole divide and conquer thing, what comes to mind is the vegans and the meat, the sustainable <laughs> meat eaters. It's a bit of a violent <laughs> war there. Um, Tando, do you want to come in? Uh, <laughs> yes, yes, I do. Um, it's it's funny that you mentioned the vegan and the. I I tried uh, being a vegetarian for a little bit. Uh, I must admit, um, it it is difficult. Um, although, 
I think eating less meat is always something that uh, I strive towards. Um, so it's a guilty pleasure. I, I just want to say that on air. Tando, I'm sorry to interrupt you. What you just mentioned, the vegan meat thing, that's, a, that's an interesting thing to unpack from a justice perspective again and an economic equality perspective. If you want to be a healthy, you know, committed vegetarian or vegan, you have to be able to afford certain kinds of um, supplements and so on. You have to actually be able to access things, healthcare and so on, which you, you, you might not be able to if you are relying on the easy access to protein which you have with meat. So I, I think those kinds of things are, are important. So that's why I think it's important to have those cornerstones, that you're not, you're not just going straight for one outcome. You're actually thinking along the lines of what is this, what, what are my um, considerations from a justice, from a feminist, from a um, climate perspective that I need to take into account, and how, where am I in this equation as a person? What, what has my life experience been, and what then allows me to make a big effort as compared to anyone else's big effort? Yeah, it. Oh, I, I think the perhaps we should set up another call where we could just talk about. Um, those dynamics between um, at least vegetarianism, veganism, uh, let's call them carnivores, and at least the affordability thereof. Um, yeah, because it basically it basically rules out many people from actually wanting to do something more substantive, right, on the basis of the economic um, class. Um, but but anyway, um, let, let, me, let me not uh, go down that hole uh, too deeply. Uh, so so quickly, just concluding questions from my side. The first one. What would you say, Brenda, is your view on the coordination, particularly of civil society, around uh, the climate crisis and our ability to be able to respond effectively to the climate crisis, number one? And then number two, um, although you have touched on this particular point, I just wanted to just uh, bring it out a bit more. Considering your, your role now at UCT as careers director, um, what would you say uh, ought to be the role of youth particularly, uh, those moving into university and those uh, in university moving towards post-grad. What ought to be, in your perspective, the view or the role that youth plays uh, in the climate crisis and the addressing of the climate crisis? Thank you, Sandra. So I can, I would want to speak to that, those two questions in a way that is completely interconnected. Um, I think one of the most important, so, so coming back to the notion of intersectionality, um, one of the the most visible things you encounter immediately when you engage with young graduates at the moment is the, the awareness of social justice and feminism and identity and, you know, the, the kinds of um, refusals and rejections of all kinds of assumptions that have, have been traditionally just um, inserted into our social spaces with, with no question. Um, so I see a shift happening in terms of uh, the kinds of the values orientation of graduates in the choices they make in the employers they want to work with, uh, sign up to work with, and within the sectors they want to work within. For instance, in relation to um, climate, you know, what are the what are the sustainability objectives of the companies? Uh, what kinds of contributions are they making to achieving um, climate objectives and so on? Um, and I think that uh, definitely, the in terms of consultation and having a coherent um, civil society approach, 
the, there's, there's, there's such value in having networks, and especially networks that are peopled by individuals who have, uh, who have taken the time to, to think, to, to, to understand themselves, taken the time to grow their emotional maturity, and they're not needing to work out that stuff within these different spaces, because a lot of the time that's what undermines and creates those tensions that uh, Pato was referring to earlier. Um, there's a there's a need for uh, women to be in those spaces, uh, in, especially in the sense of just uh, diversity and disruption of the kinds of male-centered um, patriarchal decision-making that has, has dominated these spaces. Um, and then I think the the final point I'd make is that there's, there's got to be a stronger emphasis on the South-South of awareness and identity and partnership. And when I say South, I mean the, the continent um, of Africa, um, South America, India, all of these places where, where people are um, experiencing very similar lives today as compared to others who are living as if they are in a different world, a different planet. So I, I, those are some of the things that I would um, urge for us to, to take into account in answering those two questions. But I can see the shift happening um, in terms of what graduates are signing up for because they're recognizing that um, I, am an, I am an asset, I'm a potential contributor to the world that this company is creating and, con and contributing to, and therefore I will be more judicious in the choices that I make. Thank you. Thank you so much for this conversation. I think that last question, the way that you tapped into it, definitely also touched on how do we get there to the climate policy. But before I ask you the final question of what are the practical steps of getting where we want to be? Mm -hmm. um, South, South knowledge, so important. We've got people who've never seen snow being told about the importance of polar bears polar bears to us at teddy bears that we get at the fair. Um, how do, you, you're in academia. How do we bridge that knowledge gap of, of relatability when it comes to sharing climate knowledge? Yeah, I think, you know, there's a, there's a limit to the human imagination. You, you can ask people to think about things um, as much as you like, but you know, until they've touched, smelt, you know, um, actually encountered what it is, uh, some of these other things are, it does really um, limit things. But everyone can't. We cannot all travel to these places and experience them. It's just going to add to the to the kinds of problems that we have. Uh, um, I wish that we could, we could just have a global ban on the south, you know, like nobody in the south, I mean in the north, travels for the next 10 years and only people from the south travel. <laughs> Uh, that might help, but that is not necessarily going to happen. So if, if we're talking about just adding to the current uh, flight footprint, then that, that uh, experience, direct experience, is not really an option. So I feel as if um, we've got to really capitalize on tools like form and um, good storytelling and these podcasts. I, I myself have become a massive fan of, of podcasts, just actually... It gets you know, certain podcasts uh, dealing with just one subject. They just get through to you, and they they trigger your, they inspire the the, the ideas in your mind and get you to, to think about them more. Um, uh, I definitely think that in the ways in which um, 
climate effects are made real are often through film. You know, the, the, that can be really powerful means to, to capture imagination. Um, but still, we cannot avoid those, those systemic things. Um, and starting with how we as individuals deal with our pain, as people who have lived through the systems we've lived with, lived through, we have to deal with our pain as individuals. And it's absolutely unavoidable work. It's, 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 I would say it's the first practical step. Secondly, to um, ensure that there is a, a, a recognition of our role, all of us everywhere have to play in building access and ensuring that people are uh, suffering is reduced. So those kinds of um, those are fundamental first steps. And if we if we don't address suffering and we don't have a sense that people are actually not yet moving towards access um, and having uh, some kind of uh, addressing of equity. We just actually can't expect a groundswell of action to be behind that agenda. Um, that's on the individual side. On the on the policy side, absolutely, ambition has to be driven by government, and it has to be it has to come with consequences. It's a you know business is um, able to do and change things very fast. I've, I've experienced that directly. Um, decisions can be made. Money can be spent. Money is available. Almost anything can happen really fast when the when the uh, motivation is strong enough, um, and the motivation from government around policy, and then following up that policy with with implementation, um, is vital to driving business into action um, as well, and not not allowing people just to um, to say things in the um, you know board whatever the AGM notes and the the kinds of manifestos that they come out with um, at the time when they when they report on the results. There's got to be a set of um, consequences and and implementation drivers that actually get uh, business to change. So those are sort of um, the two areas that I would comment on at this stage. There's there's a lot more, but I'd leave it there. Okay. Um, thanks for sharing those two. And when you talk about government will to act, we've always thought governments are so slow to act. And then COVID-19 came in and looking at the COVID-19 response, governments turned into acrobats and did things we never thought governments could in such short spaces of time, um, which definitely gives hope for um, the climate uh, climate crisis response. And then the last thing, we've had a near 30-minute conversation of just gems and gems and gems being dropped. If there's one thing that you would like someone to take away from this conversation, um, what would it be? They listen to this conversation, they listen to Ms. Brenda Martin, and what would you want the key thing to take away from it so that as they're listening to this, they're not so overwhelmed, they feel like, I can't possibly act with all of this. Where do I even begin? Yeah, I think uh, number one is always for me um, to remember that I am the person I've been waiting for. It's um, it's all too easy to wait for the heroes and to create heroes and, and wait for someone else to make these changes. We are able to change something ourselves and we should do whatever is in our power to do that. Secondly, we can and should bear in mind um, that we live in a, a, a very unequal society in this country 
and on the continent. We definitely have uh, similar experiences. And those things must be addressed before we can ask whole societies to change and move behind a climate agenda. And then something for the, for the North, I would say, is that uh, recognition that there is a systemic, there remains a systemic imbalance and a massive disjuncture between the experience of, of people who are living in developing economies and developed economies. And uh, while that might mean that there is a need for help, there's also a, an important shift that needs to be made in terms of listening to the South. There are people here who have wisdom and insight into our situation that actually some people just need to be quiet and listen to them. And that, so I think those are, those are some of the things that I would um, want people to remember from this conversation. Yeah. Um, so from there, what I got was check your saviorism, check your privilege, and we are the ones we've been waiting for. Um, <laughs> yeah. Ms. Brenda Martin, thank you so, so much for joining us um, in conversation today and letting us tap into 20, more than 20 years of experience and more than 20 years in this area of wisdom. Highly appreciated. Um, the conversation has been very enlightening and um, a pleasure to have. Thank you. Thank you, Tanda and Tato. Um, thank you so much, Brenda, for your time. And we shall be in touch. But yeah, I think it's been a great show. My goodness. I'm, I'm sitting with, uh, you're right, Pato, with like gems and gems and gems. I've got like maybe three pages of notes that I've taken. Um, so yeah, I think it's been a great, great conversation. And yeah, Brenda, thank you so much again. You're welcome. Wow. Go well. Thank Go you. play all the dragons. <laughs> We, we shall do our best. We shall do our best. All right. Thank you for listening to Just Us and the Climate, a production by the Climate Justice Coalition. To find out more about the Coalition and their work to promote climate justice, visit climatejusticecoalition.org. This podcast is made possible thanks to the financial support of the Friedrich Ebert Stiftung. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.